you bring in the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and then you introduce it to a national health system, doctors no longer are in control of their own practice. You are now got politicians telling you what you can and what you can't do. Medical profession today is taught in a medical school. The medical schools basically are controlled by the pharmaceutical industry. Everett Storey had four months to live, took his oxygen supplement that he created every day and lived for another 36 years. People are starting to wake up. They're starting to realise that, you know, maybe this isn't right. And they're starting to think for themselves. Hello everyone, that was the voice of today's guest, Dr Anthony Marshall. A few months ago I attended a lecture Dr Marshall gave on the work of another doctor, Otto Warburg. Dr Warburg was an expert in respiratory conditions who developed a theory of cancer based around oxygen deficiency. I asked Dr Marshall to come on the show and explain that, as well as the role it played in his work and his wider views on modern medicine. As with everything medical I put on this channel, I'll add the disclaimer that I am not personally knowledgeable in this area and my purpose is to provide interesting avenues of research, not treatment advice. Okay, with that being said, I start out by asking Dr. Marshall about his start in allopathic medicine and transition to a different view. Allopathic medicine, forget what it was originally, is not really suitable for the majority of chronic conditions today because you're taking highly toxic substances on a long-term basis. And because of the fact that I was told this when I was at medical school, and since then my eldest son worked for AstraZeneca and was told exactly the same thing, that the pharmaceutical industry at the moment, not necessarily what was going on 50 years ago, but the pharmaceutical industry at the moment do not regard themselves in the business of curing anybody of anything. Their, their official terminology is management of symptoms. Well, if you're managing symptoms, it means that you're not getting rid of the problem in the first place, which means they got a customer forever. Was there a time you were ever a believer in the allopathic model? And did you transition away from um, Well, it's a learning curve, isn't it? Yeah, it was a learning curve. When I was younger... Um, I didn't know any different. And then gradually, I found myself getting, as I got older, more and more interested in health. And um, as a result of that, I got an opportunity, uh, which was given to me to attend a medical school. And I then started to see the flaws in some of the processes that we went through in the training. I mean, some of the training is excellent, but the, I could see the flaw. And where it has fallen down is the chemical drug situation. I mean, when you talk talking about surgery and one thing or another and other aspects of it, I mean, it's first class. But the allopathic side of it, which basically means chemical medicine, basically is mostly not fit for purpose anymore because it's causing more problems than it's solving. And by the admission of the people in the business, it's not there to solve the problem. It's there to allow people to cope while they're ill. 
they do that by selling more and more drugs. Which means that they're making a vast fortunes in uh, supplying drugs. And what makes it easy, you get away from private practice. Doctors were always regarded as very, very independent people. I mean, if I go back to when I was a young man, doctors would never regard any advice or any instructions from anybody else as necessary to listen to it. They were highly individualistic. Very, very strong in their own opinions. Which is a good side and a bad side to that, admittedly. But generally speaking, doctors regarded as their personal responsibility to take care of their patients. And they accepted the responsibility of that. You bring in, you bring, you bring in the influence of the pharmaceutical industry and then you introduce it to a national health system. Doctors no longer are in control of their own practice. Doctors are no longer in control of what they can provide to their, their patients. You are now got politicians and bureaucrats telling you what you can and what you can't do. And, you, and, and because the training establishments, the medical schools, are virtually controlled and have been for many, many years by the pharmaceutical industry, and the pharmaceutical industry has turned away from what we would have regarded as healing people into basically just a profit-making centre and spending their time just looking after symptoms by their own admission, the system doesn't function properly anymore. I mean, I'll give you an example. I spent a lot of time in third world countries. If you look at the problems they're struggling with in third world countries, generally speaking with health, they're having the same problems with things that we had in western countries like say the UK, Europe, maybe on the Alaman here, maybe 60, 70 years ago, or 100 years ago. And why? Well, because the problems we had in the past were problems with hygiene, lack of quality clean water, sufficient quality food. I mean, there's nothing wrong with the quality of the food. The big problem was, did you get enough of it? Mm. Um, and then, of course, there was generally a lack of understanding about certain aspects of taking care of yourself. Um, that has basically been taken care of, although, unfortunately, the quality of the food mm. is really, really poor now. Um, but you go to Africa. I spent time in Africa. As an example, um, all the childhood diseases that used to be a bit of a problem when I was a little kid, say 60, 70, 75 years ago, exist there on an ongoing basis because they still don't have regular clean water supplies, they don't have good living conditions, quite often they don't have appropriate clothing for the weather, um, they struggle with sufficient food, etc. etc. So they're having the same problems now that we might have had 60, 70, 80 years ago. Mm -hmm. um, 
So they're not going to be fixed by vaccinations and chemical medicine. What they need is the things fixing which are fixed for us. Clean supply of water, plenty of water, hygiene, understanding of hygiene, sufficient food, living conditions. I mean, when I was a boy, I mean, we weren't poor compared to many people. But I remember as a small boy walking to school and didn't really have any proper wet weather gear. So when we used to get to school, because nobody ever drove anybody to school in those days, used to walk. I mean, when I was like six or seven years of age, I'd walk two miles to school and two miles back. And in the winter, it was, I mean, the weather, the seasons were more fixed than they are now. So you'd have proper, really cold, wet winters, and you'd have long, warm, dry summers. Well, now it's all over the place, so you never know what you're going to get today. I used to get to school, like most of the other kids, my shoes were soaking wet through. My coat was soaked through because it was like that during the Second World War, just afterwards. They didn't have suitable wet weather clothing. And even warm weather, cold weather clothing. I remember coming in by the time I was about 10 when we used to get duffel coats, which was something that we the Navy used to use and and re, we thought origin, originated in Canada, actually, though. And when we used to get to school soaking wet, they used to take our top coats off and our shoes and they used to hang them up on a rack in the schoolroom. So we sat there doing our schoolwork in a room full of steam while our clothes were drying out. And by the time they were dried out, we were going back home and it started all over again. My shoes used to be packed with um, news, rolled up newspaper and stuck in the airing cupboard overnight to dry out and I mean that's how we lived and we weren't poor I mean there were lots of people a lot worse off than we were and uh, I apart from school dinners which used to be very good in those days by the way um, I only got a cooked meal on the weekends, especially Sunday, you know, the old Sunday roast mm -hmm. and all that, which a lot of people didn't get. I mean, I knew plenty of people who who were really hard up in those days. I mean, we had a family uh, that we knew, um, 12 children they had, and for Sunday dinner, they had a, a can of, um, a can of tomato soup watered down, but 14 people. I mean, that's poor. Yeah. Um, and of course, you're subject to all sorts of coughs and colds and flus and all that because you, you, you can't protect your immune system if you're constantly wet and cold and you're not fed properly. Now, all that's basically good. Now we eat too much and too much of the wrong, wrong things. I mean, I only eat one meal a day. Mm. But of course, I'm an old man now. So I don't need a lot of food. Um, but we all eat far too much. And mostly it's the wrong food. If you go to a, a typical um, supermarket today, 
and you walk through it and look at everything that's for sale for food, I would say at least 75% of it didn't exist 60 years ago. It's all factory-made, chemically processed, highly processed foods, which might fill your stomach, but has no nutrition in it. And it's even getting worse because some of the foods actually fight some of the substances they're putting in the food and actually fight a dangerous chemicals. Why has this been allowed to happen? Well, the big problem you've got is the pharmaceutical industry and the food industry and the chemical industry are all interconnected today. So the chemical industry is interested in using chemicals. You've got biochemists coming up with new formulas. And if they can make something cheaper, they will. So most ingredients are artificial rather than natural. you now in a position whereby you can actually buy a what used to be a natural food doesn't have anything in it. I'll give you an example. On, I only realised only a, this last week. When I was a boy, when we used to go out in the winter, when we were at school, and we'd say, for instance, went to the local swimming baths, we'd get an oxo drink, a hot oxo drink, when we were leaving the baths to warm us up before we left. Have you ever seen, have you ever looked at the ingredients of an OXO cube now? No. Well, you want to try it. There's only one natural ingredient in an OXO cube, and that is four and a half grams of beef fat for every hundred grams of OXO cube. So the amount you would find in one OXO cube which used to be a drink, is so minuscule as to be meaningless. Everything else is all chemicals. Right. So we've we now got what used to be a natural food. Now you've got a chemical, a cube of chemicals, and there's no food in it. So I've heard you talk about this centralization in terms of the Rockefeller family and their influence on medicine, the Flexner yeah. Report. So you see this as a a kind of centralised plan almost? To... You see, it's... I don't know what their idea was originally. The two people who set up the modern allopathic medical system. That was John D. Rockefeller and Carnegie. Carnegie, okay. Yeah. So it's Andrew Carnegie. They were friends and there were the two biggest businessmen of their age and one of the very very two of the very few billionaires that existed i mean there weren't even that many millionaires around in, in their day <clears throat> and they got together one day because one was in steel one was in oil the biggest people in the world in this field and the chemical industry had just got started some years before um, in a, uh, with IG Farben in Germany. And of course, they were dealing with chemists now because they were using it in their industries. 
and some other chemist or some chemist or somebody had just mentioned to Rockefeller, we, we can make medicines out of uh, these chemicals. So he thought about it, decided to talk to Andrew Carnegie, his friend, and they decided that what they'd like to do is do just that. Have medicines made out of chemicals and because of the way these men think, they could not only profit from it, but they could control it. I mean, you will find that people at the top in business, I'm talking about the big international groups and one thing or another, they don't like opposition. They don't like competition. They will tend, if there's any serious competition to what they do, it's just in their nature. It's like territorial, it's like an animal protecting its territory. Mm -hmm. they, they will naturally, straight away, save this somewhere they can get rid of the competition. If they can't get rid of it, they'll buy it. And that way that they control it, if they can. As a result of the way they think, they were planning, how do we get control of the medical? How do we get, how do we, how are we able to introduce these chemical medicines into the medical profession. Because doctors in those days were incredibly independent-minded. Uh, you weren't dealing with a national situation. You were dealing with a huge number of highly individualistic, critical thinkers who thought for themselves. Um, and then, then you, they're thinking about the competition of all the different health systems there are, medical systems there are. How do we manage to get people to concentrate on what we want? And their plan was, if we control the training establishments, the medical schools, then we can get the medical schools to teach the doctors what we want them to be taught. That way we control everything. In 1910, they put this plan into place. And with the power they had with the media and uh, with government, I mean, don't forget, governments are always there to be bought. They used to say, you always get the government, that um, the best government you can, that money can buy. Um, and that's not changed. In fact, it's just got worse. So... In simplistic terms, that's exactly what they did. And the way they did it was quite simple. They go to the big medical schools, they start with the big one, the big name ones first, and they would go to them and say, we'd like to support you. We believe in what you're doing, we'd like to support you. How about we give you a million dollars a year? In 1910, 1900, a million dollars is a lot of money. And then of course they did it in the UK as well. They went to the big training schools in the UK and in other countries eventually it spread it everywhere. And they put money into these establishments. And of course, once they were used to getting this money on an annual basis, very quickly they would say, well, maybe the second year. Well, we give you a million, we give you two million last year. Uh, we're thinking of actually increasing it again. But we feel if we're providing you with all this money, would like to put somebody on the board who could 
just make sure the money's been used, whatever, you come up with some reason, whatever, you know, just to monitor it in one thing or another. And of course, if they didn't agree with that, then chances are they wouldn't get the money. So they would agree to it, and gradually by introducing people on the boards of these things, they started to gradually influence the way that the uh, pharmaceutical companies thought and then behaved. And over the years, they've got to the stage where they control it completely. The medical profession today is taught in the medical school. The medical schools basically are controlled by the pharmaceutical industry, especially in America. Um, but it's indirectly in the United States because what you can't do, say, in the UK on the Isle of Man, doctors here basically don't buy all the drugs and then resell them on to their patients. That's where they make most of their money. Where if we have a national health system, there's a good side to that. People can get medical treatment without paying huge amounts of money for it. But the only problem is, because it's a national health system which is controlled by government, the government determines what you get and when you get it. And uh, that's, that's the downside to having a national health system. The doctors have lost control. So in your presentation, I heard you talk about how this has led to certain medical paradigms being selected for and other ones rejected. And you yeah. gave an example of a German doctor who had a theory of cancer he developed, I think, in the 1930s, which you thought really explained the whole thing. Would you be able to talk about that, please? Sure. Um, let me just think for the moment. You're talking about Otto, Otto Warburg. That's the man, yes. Well, he, he was a very interesting character. Um, he was an expert in respiratory conditions, which is to, obviously to do with oxygen and the use of it in your body. And um, he was Hitler's original doctor. And uh, before the Second World War broke out, he was actually Hitler's doctor. In fact, he was protected by Hitler. That's why he's although he was Jewish, and but he managed to get throughout the war, and I think he died in 1970, somewhere about 1970. And <clears throat> Hitler protected him because he called him the good Jew. Um, taking this aside, which doesn't make sense, Hitler didn't have any hatred uh, or distrust of the Jews. Forget what he said, he was a politician. I have actually got a statement written down somewhere. Specifically what he said was, everything he did was political purposes. He needed someone to blame for the problems in society and he needed to hang it on somebody. So he chose the Jews. He said, because they're an easy target. But, but he didn't have a problem with the Jews. I mean, his doctor was a Jew. So um, you get to... When the war started, then he had this other doctor whose name I can't remember, who took over his treatment, and the guy was lunatic. He used to give him all these poisonous substances and 
and these other things. And I think by, by the time you got halfway through the Second World War, I don't think Hitler knew what the hell he was doing. I think he'd, he was so bombed out on these drugs, I don't think he knew what he was doing. But not, not that I'm making any excuses for him, but um, it, that's basically the history of that. Now, Otto Warburg in 1931 actually wrote a paper on the causes of cancer, uh, which he won the Nobel Prize for. His explanation is that there's only one cause of cancer. Well, today, if you go speak to any oncologist, oh no, there's all sorts of different think ways you can get cancer, there's this, there's that and the other. Well, there's a lot of cofactors involved, but there is only one way you can get cancer. Now, having said that, quick side, in 1931 they didn't understand about radiation. You can get cancer through nuclear radiation. Now, it's too complicated to go through the process of what, how it warps the genome and then et cetera, et cetera. So we'll just leave that aside because okay. I don't think you'll find that many people who are dying of nuclear radiation. But cancer is the biggest killer of all. I mean, the estimate in Western countries is about 44% of the population comes down with cancerous growths, serious cancerous growths at some time in their lives. And the vast majority of them end up dying of it. Now, I would say in actual fight, while that is an acceptable statistic or a, a, a general statistic, I don't think it's actually really true. I think what kills the majority of people is the treatment they get. Now, I will now go back to Otto Warburg's paper he wrote. How do you get cancer? Well, actually it's quite simple. If the oxygen in your cells drops below 36%, the cells are no longer aerobic. They can't stay alive. They don't get enough oxygen. So there's like an instinctive survival situation kicks in with the cells. And they go from being aerobic to anaerobic. So they're not burning oxygen for energy anymore. You're, they are now burning glucose or sugar. Okay, and they live off sugar. When that happens, the cells are having to burn the sugar to stay alive or well it's not just stay alive but to provide them with enough energy so they can stay alive there's a, a condition called apoptosis all the cells in your body are replaced on a regular basis some last a few weeks some last a few months some last a few years but every seven years from a physical point of view we're a completely new person when apoptosis kicks in, natural cellular death and replacement is disturbed. So what happens is this. The cells that are due to die off 
and be replaced by new ones, they don't die. So when the new ones turn up, they clamp on the old ones because they're supposed to be replacing them, but they don't. They clamp onto the old the old ones, and then they gradually become aerobic as well. I mean anaerobic. Wait a minute. I apologise. They be yeah, they become anaerobic, and they start burning sugar as a result because when they clamp on it they join in using the same uh, vascular system. Their, their blood supply becomes the same. Well, if you have constant new cells coming up, that clamping on old ones, which is on an ongoing process, that's how you end up with a tumour. That's how cancerous tumours start. So that's how you end up getting cancer. So the golden question is, uh, how do you stop yourself from getting cancer? We've got to make sure that your cells have got sufficient oxygen. How do you do that? Very easy. The food you eat, what you drink, plenty of fresh, ex fresh air, sunlight, exercise, and the problem pretty much is resolved. But look at what's happened over the last 50 years. People are becoming more sedentary. I mean, kids don't get six and eight-year-old kids walking two miles to school anymore. They spend all the time on computers. Adults do. Most people work indoors. You go back 50, 60 years ago, apart from the ones in industry, people will be working outside. So fresh air, sunlight. I mean, that certainly would have been true over a hundred years ago. And as the 20th century moved on, people get less and less exposure to all the natural elements. Less and less natural foods are being eaten. What people drink, an actual fact of massive nutrient deficiencies and we're loading ourselves down with toxic chemicals. That's how. Ca that's why cancer becomes a problem. So the nutrient deficiencies, the toxic chemicals, are causing the cells to become anaerobic. Um, yes, but it's also stopping you from getting rid of it, because once you start, once you start um, burning sugar. If you don't change your, the way you live, what happens is, is that the situation just gets worse. And as a result of that, you've gone from a situation whereby cancer a few hundred years ago was virtually unknown. Now it's one, the biggest single problem there is from a health point of view. I mean, you ask anybody, what is the one thing you don't want to get? Cancer. Oh, oh, I don't want to get cancer. It's become a, a thing where people are terrified of getting it. And yet, majority of people get it. I used to know the... Um, um, when I was in Panama, um, our chief clinician, Dr. Chimeno um, Pinzon, his wife was the... Um, that dealt me... 
the uh, she used to do all the autopsies. The coroner. Right. She was the chief coroner for Panama. And uh, she said to me that it was quite rare to find someone who didn't have evidence of cancer growth in them. She said even when they were young. But quite often when they were young, the immune system would kill it off. Um, but it's becoming harder and harder to kill developing cancer cells off now because we don't have any of the things in our system that would allow us to do that. And it's not vitamins that are the biggest but it's lack of minerals. Vitamins don't function properly without sufficient of the right minerals. We don't get the minerals in the food. Even fresh food today is massively short of minerals because all the soil's all depleted. The world has gone over in the West to what they call monocrops. So they grow wheat and they grow soybeans and they grow these monocrops and they, they use all these um, um, various plant oils. None of them are really designed for human consumption. I mean, wheat, really, was always probably the best food that a person could eat. All nations could survive if they had a good wheat crop. The problem is, <clears throat> in the last 50 years, it's been genetically modified four times. You go to a shop and you buy any bread, as an example, try and find one with wheat germ in it. That's the heart of the wheat. Mm -hmm. What they've done is extracted it, they sell that to pharmaceutical companies, they sell it to people who produce supplements, uh, or they sell it as a separate item. And that's where the nutrition is, primarily. If you take the strip out, the most important parts of a food, away from it, and then wheat becomes um, totally insufficient for nutrients for humans. Then it's made worse by genetically modifying it. I mean, what's the problem a lot of people have? They have got this gluten problem. Mm. Well, go back. 40, 50 years, nobody ever, gluten, nobody would have known what it was. It wasn't because all of a sudden we're smarter now. There was never a gluten problem because as they've modified the wheat, the gluten content has got higher and higher. And you've got rid of the heart of the wheat, which is the wheat germ, which is what, where all the goodness is. So basically now you've got a dead food. And this is before you process it even further and turn it into white bread. And then they've even made that worse a lot of the white bread, though that it doesn't get sold, is now returned to the companies who make bread, who then put it in a special machine which mixes it back into some plasticky mulch again, and then they produce bread out of it again, rebake it. As I say, and that's them. If you go to some of these stores, they sell this really cheap white bread. Mm -hmm. That's what you're getting. Wow. Reprocessed garbage it's garbage before it goes there and it's really garbage when it comes out you've used this model from dr warburg to treat cancer as well haven't you sure what does that look like well the way you where you treat people who've got cancer if you've got to get them to change the lifestyle 
as much as possible. And you've, the key is to put the oxygen back in the body. Well, I used to be asked, these, is there a simple answer to this? Well, I said, first off, you only eat foods that are alive or have recently been alive. That's something that natural fat is nine months old and came out of a factory. And there are supplements you can take which assist in providing the body either with additional oxygen or like vitamin E allows the body to function much better actually needing less oxygen. I mean this is something that they only discovered about 25-30 years ago and it's still a little bit of a mystery how it allows muscles and uh, your vital organs to function better on less oxygen, but it does. And once you start taking specialized supplements, now there are compounds like uh, what they call oxygen supplements. I mean, there's a lot of them now these days. It used to be, but there is. I've been using a product called Cell Food probably for, I don't know, 35 years now, 40 years, something like that. Now, Cell Food has about 180 ingredients in it. It's a liquid, it's in a little bottle, I could show you some. And it's unique. Only one company in the world makes it. And this came about for a man called, a, a, a scientist who was the world's greatest authority in um, um, deuterium. Now deuterium is the only non-radioactive isotope of hydrogen. Hydrogen, which is the largest, most um, abundant element in, in the universe, as far as we're aware, is basically essential to the creation of life. Oxygen is essential to the sustenance of life. So if you get the two things together, hydrogen and oxygen, um, just in case you got some clever guy listening to this and says, ah, oh, well, yeah, but... Um, oxygen can be a problem. No, all one, which is missing one of the one of the elements, is a problem. All two is what we breathe. All three is ozone, and you mix ozone with all one, and it gets gives you all two. So I don't want to get in too technical, right? But basically speaking, the oxygen we breathe is life sustaining. Unfortunately, the oxygen levels have dropped on the Earth. Uh, deep core drilling in the Arctic and the Antarctic showed there was a time when the oxygen levels on the Earth were 50%. Well, I would have thought during those days, I don't know how far back we're going now, I can't remember. But I bet there weren't much in the way of any disease around in those days. Not with a 50% oxygen content. Oxygen levels in 
on the earth at the moment are running about 18.5%. In some of the cities, with traffic and etc. and pollution, uh, it can be as low as 16% or less in some cases. I mean, they've measured the oxygen content once in Mexico City is down as low as 12%. You get, you get at that level, you're almost at the level where life can't be sustained any longer. And you're totally susceptible to any kind of sickness and disease because you have no protection. Oxygen is the key. To go back to uh, Everett's story, he was he was primarily responsible for the development of the hydrogen bomb because he was the world's greatest expert in that field. After they'd finished working on it and they'd managed to successfully test the first hydrogen bomb, him and his team had been working on it, still didn't understand radiation properly in those days, found that they were all dying of radiation poisoning. And he was given something like four months to live. But because of his knowledge, he developed a, an oxygenating product, which he called cell food. And when it was first brought out, it was actually a medicine. It was a registered medicine. And then later on, they took it off that because it does so many other things that if you register a medicine, it's got to be tested at enormous expense for this particular thing. If you want it to do something else, it's got to be done again, all over again. And he didn't want that. Anyway, cut, cut the story short. Everett Story had four months to live, took his oxygen supplement that he created every day and lived for another 36 years. Now, in cell food, you've got hydrogen, what they call nascent oxygen, which means it isn't actually, the oxygen isn't in the bottle, but when you take it, and you say, it turns into oxygen inside your system. In fact, we used to have a trick. Anybody at faints, you can drop two or three drops underneath their tongue, bring them around straight away. Because of sublingual assimilation, mm -hmm. gets in the system in a few seconds, it gives them a huge oxygen boost, and that brings them around. Um, but it also has vitamins, minerals, trace elements, all the enzymes, all the amino acids, and it's a life extender. Now you took cell food every day, and that will help you get through not any illness, it will prevent it, or if you do get it, you'll recover very quickly. Um, because basically, he called it cell food because basically you can inject it straight into an artery and your body doesn't recognize it's there because it's the same constituent components of your own bodily fluids. And uh, they've used it for some amazing things over the years. But then when people started to realize just how incredibly good this is, the pressure was being put on people not to use it 
and a lot of the things that were the running trials and successful cures were stopped by the authorities, um, which happens all the time. Yeah. And um, that's one of the things I use, and that would be good for anybody to use, cell food. So um, that, that's a, so now there are other products as well, ex excellent products that you can take that actually fight protect you against these sicknesses. A couple of questions, just things that come to my sure. mind. I see people using hyperbaric chambers uh, with an increased oxygen level for yeah. speeding up wound healing. Would that yeah. fall into something that is potentially Sure. Anything that increases the oxygen levels in your cells will not only protect you against cancer, and in some cases actually kill the cancer off, because if you're able to flood your body with oxygen, the cells can actually fight, can, can start to regenerate themselves. Um, it boosts your immune system, and the immune system, if it's functioning properly, regards these cancer cells as a foreign body that shouldn't be there and will actually attack them and destroy them. The other question I have, the thing I often hear from nutritionists about, about cancer is that it's acidic in some way, so they move people onto an alkaline diet. Is that something that relates to what you're saying at all? Or is yes, that it, it does. It does. It does, yeah. <clears throat> um, the, the cancer cells themselves are basically thrive in an acidic environment. Um, the reason for that is, and you'd be surprised, cow's milk is, it makes you very acidic. Now you wouldn't think that, but it does. Um, but when you're acidic, it causes inflammation. Inflammation basically creates serious problems in the body because your body no longer functions properly, damages your immune system, the immune system doesn't work as well. And I'm just doing it in his layman's language, okay? So consequently, if you do try and turn yourself into the balance of alkalinity, which is perfect, is about 7.2, 7.3 is ideal. Um, you now create an environment in which you are no longer suffering from inflammation. When that happens, it's easy for the body to heal itself of other things. Inflammation really is a major impediment to the body healing itself because it's struggling with a major problem already. Is that why you'd see people treating things like rheumatoid arthritis with a very plant-based diet? Yeah, the only problem I've got with plant-based diets is, I know this is quite controversial, is that most plants are not suitable for human consumption, including a lot that we do eat. Right. I mean, if you take a, I, I, this is not the best example, but I'll give you something simple. A potato comes from a plant which is part of the dead, deadly nightshade variety, mm -hmm. which are highly poisonous, right? Is a basic potato poisonous? The answer to that is yes and no. 
the mistake people make, and you see it all the time, is that it's, it's what they call a root crop. So they dig it out of the ground, then they leave it uncovered. They now, nobody wants potatoes like they used to have them when I was a boy, full of dirt. So they wash them all off. Then they go out and put them into the stores and they're sitting there in the, in the light. When that happens, sometimes you'll see they start to turn green. Mm -hmm. You've now got a toxic food. And even before they go green, when they're out in the light, they start to turn toxic. So straight away, you're actually eating something that's not suitable, really, for human consumption if it's left out in the light. But whoever tells the farmers, whoever tells the um, the people who handle the potatoes and the supermarkets that they're supposed to be kept in the dark, they don't bother. And that was the advantage of getting the old taters we used to get, which covered in mud, because that would protect the potatoes against the against artificial light or sunlight. Um, so it starts to revert, the potato reverts as part of the deadly nightshade plant because it's not supposed to be uh, out in the light. Um, I'm just giving that as a simple example of the problems that we have with some food. Other, other foods, a lot of them, foods that they're turning into oils, I mean Think about all the different oils you can buy on the shelves now, yeah. right? Most of them are very, very harmful to humans. They're all loaded down with omega-6s, and you have very little of the 3s, which is the counterbalance uh, that you would get, for instance, if, if you were talking about an animal fat, for instance. And you never hear anything about omega-9 or 12s, which are also essential, but you never hear anything about them. So if you look at my cupboard, we use olive oil, but we only buy the very best because most olive oils now are um, adulterated with other cheaper oils. And they get away with it because if you read a label carefully, it says, this is government again, allow them to do it. 100% virgin olive oil. It doesn't mean what you think it means. It doesn't mean that all the oil in this bottle is 100% virgin olive oil. It means the hundred that the olive oil that is virgin in here is, but it might only be a quarter of the oil. Wow. Now that was a trick started in Italy originally by the Mafia and they get picks up who used to control the olive oil industry mm. and that's gone into the industry now. So you've got to be careful. So my wife is the one who likes olive oil. I use hemp oil. Hemp oil, which is part of the cannabis plant, uh, you can buy it now from, in it, from Tesco's and cut stores like that. It's got the perfect balance of omegas, threes, sixes, nines, and twelves. Where traditionally was all the um, cannabis plants, or if you want to call it the hemp plants grown and produced, the UK. 
I used to go to a farm in Somerset and buy my oil direct from the farmer who had a license to grow this stuff. And we used to supply it to the medical profession all over the world. And yet it's still not legal. I mean, it's a, it's, it's a crime against yeah. humanity because there's no possible justification. The, I mean, I, I spoke to a, a medical professional once and he said, oh, well, we're still studying it and we're not really sure about it yet. We need more work to do. I said, six years ago, because I'm out of date now, there have been 14,000 scientific papers written on cannabis. 14,000. Every single one of them was positive. There wasn't one negative report. I said, including several government ones, where the government paid to prove that it was harmful, and they still reported back, no, it's not, it's actually very good for you. So the idea that this is a new thing and they still learn is nonsense. But they'll never let it go out on a large scale, apart from the kind of uses they're talking about. And, and the reason why they're slow to do it is the pharmaceutical industry again. Mm. If people used all the variations there are of, uh, of, of cannabis or oils, would probably eliminate the need for at least 50% of the drugs that are sold. And that they don't want, unless they can completely control it. Yeah. So this is the kind of problems that we have in society today. Um, have we got any other questions about that? Just to follow up on the dietary one, you, yeah. when you were treating people, you weren't using a purely vegetarian diet then. You were, it was permissible to eat meat. And be quite honest with you, the animal foods, eaten in, especially in the winter during the cold, is the best possible food for humans. We're designed to be omnivores. We're not designed to be vegetarians. Right. The only problem with meat today is not because it's an animal product. The, the problem we have is the fact that cows are now fed artificial foods, as an example, the, the, the grass-fed beef is probably the best, one of the best foods you could possibly eat. But how many grass-fed cattle are there today? No, they feed them on soya beans and other grains and one thing or another. And they don't get the opportunity to only eat grass and one thing or another. It's like chickens. They say, oh, they're free to roam. Uh, these chickens are not eating insects and various things that they're pecking off the ground. They throw grain out for them to eat. The same grain that's bad for us because it's deprived of all the proper nutrients and then the chickens eat it. And as a result of that, the eggs you get and their meat is not as good as it should be. Plus the fact that the majority of chickens are kept in a cage about this big and they're full of disease and it's it's the way what big business with the connivance of government and the pharmaceutical industry have created where the majority of foods are actually harmful to the public 
and the warts that aren't harmful have been demonized. Um, most of the diseases that you see today didn't really exist years ago. Um, I'll give you an example. Some years ago, there was a group of scientists who decided that they would uh, run a trial of what they could find by digging up mummies. They went to various governments in the Middle East, South America, Central America, where they do mummification of corpses, mm -hmm. and got them to agree to allow them to do autopsies on them. And over a period of about 10 years, they did autopsies on 8,000 mummies. Now, this ranged from, if I remember correctly, 1500 BC to maybe 1000 AD. It's about a two, approximately a 2000 year mm -hmm. period. Bearing in mind that we have 44% of people have cancer in them. How many, or what percentage of these mummies were affected by cancer cells, cancer growths? What do you reckon? So I'm, I'm presuming it's very low, like less than 10%. Right. Actual fact, it's, it's not so much a percentage. They only found one out of 8,000 wow. that had any sign at all of cancer. Because you're talking about people who live in a country environment, eating natural foods. So all the stuff that's killing us didn't exist in those days. The air was clean and fresh. We hadn't entered the industrial age. People worked outside. We're designed as humans to spend our time in the open air, which if you're stuck in an office on a computer all the time, pretty well screws that up straight away. And that's mm. what most people are doing. They work indoors. And they don't get enough time to get out the fresh air. Um, your immune system cannot function unless you get enough sunlight. That's where, you've heard of D3, haven't you? Mm, yeah. Right, well they call it a vitamin, but actually it's not. D3 is a hormone. And it's the thing that basically is the foundation stone for the function, proper function of your immune system. So if you don't get enough sun, light on your body, you got a problem. And is that something people need to load upon actually in the summertime because the angle of the sun is too low to deliver it in the winter? Well, you can build up a certain amount which lasts throughout the year. But the other thing you've got to bear in mind is that unless you're in, in the Arctic, I mean, you might be able to pick up a certain amount of sunlight because when the sun's always shining, mm. I mean, it's dull and miserable. It's still, still getting hit by the sun's rays now. Um, and what you've got to recognise, though, is people who live in very cold climates when there isn't a lot of sun, especially in the winter, they have higher rates of these diseases like cancer than they do in hot climates. Right. So it's... 
it, uh, it's just one of those things that you've got to recognize that you've got the benefit if you're living in a warm climate. We need sunlight. We need fresh air. Why? Because we need the oxygen. These are critical to so, our health. So, okay, so we're sat essentially by a beach here and there's people down there working in office blocks and you're yeah. suggesting the, the quality of the air people will be getting if they were to go down to that beach, ignoring the fact maybe there's a main road next to it, so just pretend mm. that's not there. The, the quality of the air down there is going to be considerably higher than where people are sitting in their offices. Oh, absolutely. And I would... mean, think about it. We're by the sea. You're not only getting fresh oxygen, you're getting ozone. Where does ozone come from? The ocean, winds across the top of mountains, and the big one, lightning strikes. I reckon on an average day, there's about 100,000 lightning strikes take place around the world. That creates ozone. I've got a machine in there that creates ozone. Um, it produces ultravi uh, ultraviolet light. And at the same time, it, as a result, the ultraviolet light creates the ozone. Um, that was uh, originally designed in 1911 by Tesla, who is the world's, in my opinion, probably the greatest genius I ever lived, at least I'm aware of anyway, mm. because virtually everything that we have today that's electrical, electronic, wouldn't exist if it wasn't for him. Mm. Um, so we have these opportunities to, to do these things, but people are not educated. And of course, people have the right to choose for themselves. So if they want to stay indoors and miss out on all the things they really need, I mean, that's their business. But I think people should be educated and allowed to make decisions for themselves. But they're lied to all the time. I mean, sunlight? Oh, you can't go out in the sun. It's going to give you skin cancer. So how do you start yourself if you do if well if you really want to go out on holiday and you want to sit in the sun well you've got to protect you and you've got to protect your children so we'll give you some chemicals to spray and rub on your skin right well be quite honest with you i've lived in countries where people work out in the sun light all the time central america South America, Africa, one thing or another. Skin cancer is almost unknown, and yet they're in the sun all the time. People are f fairly fair. I used to, when I was working at one stage in Africa, we used to get all these kids from Scandinavia, and the parents used to let them run around naked all day. And so these little blonde, their wear was so blonde it was almost white. They had these incredibly beautiful golden tans. And you could, their skin and their whole body used to shine. You could see their health shining out of them. Well, I'm assuming there's a case of building a tolerance, right? Because if you just go out having spent all winter indoors on the hottest day of the year, then you're going you're gonna to burn. So it's, well, it's a case yes, of burning a tolerance. that's right. And why? It's quite simple. People usually don't do this. I mean, okay, there are exceptions, of course. They work indoors in an office or they work in a factory or they do whatever they do. And then, oh, we're going on holiday. We've got to Spain for a fortnight. Mm. 
what is a typical person who goes to on a holiday for a fortnight do? Well, especially if they were younger. What they do, they lie in the sun all day, which they're not used to. Mm. And at night they go, they go drinking, which is the worst possible thing you can do because the alcohol that you take in your, in your body through your drinking goes straight into the cells and pulls, pushes all the oxygen out. And, and you end up with cell, cellular, what they call cellular intoxication. Your cells are full of alcohol. Well, alcohol and the sun really don't mix. If you want to get skin cancer, go drinking at night and lying in the sun during the day. That's why people go on holiday. They, they get burnt or they come back and they, they say, well, I never got burnt because I was careful, but they've ended up with skin cancer. And a lot of it's to do with these combinations of things that work to provide, give you these negative results. So alcohol is very uh, deoxidizing of the... Yeah, absolutely. So if you genuinely want to get uh, a good tan when you're on holiday, you really shouldn't be drinking alcohol. Now, who's going to tell people that? Mm. It's, I mean, a lot of people want to listen. Do you advocate avoiding it altogether or in some kind of moderation? Oh, yeah. Alcohol isn't the problem it used to be years ago. But there again, we didn't have all these alternative things and we didn't have the problems that... I mean, virtually today, everything's a problem today. You've got chemicals in the carpets, in the furnishings, in the paints and everything. You've got electrical systems. I mean, if I went into my home when I was, say, 10 years old, 20 years old, you wouldn't see, in, you wouldn't see pieces of equipment plugged in to electricity all over the house. They don't exist. And every, oh, they, even the, the whole electrical system in a home gives off radiation. You might not think that just plugging in something over there provides, but you'd be surprised if you had the right equipment, you test it. You find every, this place, as an example, is full of radiation. High levels of radiation. Why? Because you've got stuff everywhere and you've got wiring throughout the house. You've got lights, you've got TVs, you've got iPads, you've got iPhones and a, a hundred other things and one thing or another. We can tolerate it up to a point, but when it becomes so evasive like it is in modern living, and you're already weakened because of all these other things we talked about, then you become a victim of your lifestyle. Mm. Um, one of the ways you protect yourself is get out as much as you possibly can into the fresh air, into the sunlight, and you need to eat a diet which is rich in natural substances which are oxygen carriers. And you can't get that out of something that's manufactured in a factory. It's got to be something that's grown in the ground. And most people don't eat food. Most people, look what they drink. The vast majority of people drink 
soft drinks, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's power from the alcohol, they drink soft drinks. Just look at the, 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 um, the ingredients in soft drinks. I mean, even the Coca-Cola company um, have changed the formula over the years. The, the modern Coke today is devastating to your health. I mean, devastating. In fact, I've got a thing I could send you by email if you wanted. Mm -hmm. You could read up about Coca-Cola. But why pick on Coca-Cola? There's plenty of other companies yeah. selling stuff just as bad, if not worse. And I know loads of people who don't drink water. They don't drink water without unless they put something in it. But you get these bottles of squash and all that. You read the ingredients. It's firstly just a colorings and chemicals. Mm. And you load yourself down with all these poisonous substances and you go through all this list of things I've just said and then you wonder why you get ill all the time. People were not designed to be ill. People were designed to be well. The body is a miracle in the way it works and how it's able to fix itself. But we don't give it a chance because we because of our lifestyle, we load ourselves down with so much poisonous junk and then don't provide it with the things that are essential for the body to work and then wonder why we get sick. I mean, it's like, it's like putting, it's like instead of putting oil and, and petrol in your car, it's like the equivalent of putting soapy water in the petrol tank mm. and um, some other junk. I mean, it, 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 you know, and that's the simple. We, we're not functioning properly the way we're supposed to. Well, one final thing I'd like to ask about. I've heard you talk about a supplement that you attribute your maintaining your mobility to and that you can go on a long car journey and you get out and you jump out and you're fine. You don't feel this kind of... Well, that basically is a, is, is a product called... It's known as MSM but it's methyl sulfonylmethane. It's a form of sulfur. Uh, it's one of the most abundant chemicals in your body, or it should be. Not the most, but one of them. And it basically, in simplistic term, keeps you young. It allows you to function. It will eliminate or stop inflammation. So people who get rheumatoid arthritis and these other conditions can get rid of it by taking this particular product. And if you take it on a regular basis, you don't get it. I mean, I'm 80. I've never had a stiff joint or a painful thing. I mean, I can go on a, I can go get in a car and drive for f four or five hours and get out and I don't, I'm not stiff. Why? Because I take MSM every day and I've been doing for... Oh, I don't know, 40 years. Mm -hmm. It just keeps you young. It's also very beneficial for your eyes um, because there's probably more MSM in your eyes, barata, than anywhere else in your body. It just allows your body to function and, and keeps it young. And if you're suffering from pain through inflammation, um, MSM will is a great treatment for it. But if you take it on a regular basis, 
you shouldn't have it anyway. The key is to take enough of it and make sure you do take it every day. Right, if you're below a certain minimum, you're not going to notice. Oh yeah, and the way you can tell whether you need it or not, you just put some in your mouth. Just take, sometimes it clumps together sometimes, you can take a little lump out, stick it in your mouth, see what it tastes like. The more bitter it is, the more short you are. Right. If I put it in my mouth, it just tastes like water to me. It doesn't really have any taste. But I've put it, I've given some to eat, and they go, oh, 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 oh. So, well, yeah, you, you keep. That's why when I do take it, I don't mix it in water or anything. I just pop it in my mouth. Then I can monitor then, am I, have I got enough? So, I mean, that... And I'll tell you an interesting story how they found out about that. It wasn't doctors and people looking to help people. It was um, veterinarians looking how to help get racehorses to recover oh, quickly right. after a race. Right because of the strains. I mean, if you pay 10 or $20 million for a horse and it runs in a race and then it's stiff and limping afterwards, because, you know, because you, if you're an, an athlete and they're that feet, they're, 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 they're like athletes, enormous strains on the joints and everything. And they actual fact came up with this substance that apparently the Seminole Indians I talked about that they get it from pine trees, mm -hmm. and originally they used to get them from the Louisiana pine trees in America. And so they tried it on the horses, and it works. So eventually, somebody says, "Well, it works on horses. Maybe it works on humans." So we they started doing tests on humans, and as a result, they found it worked with humans perfectly. And so it's just gone from there. And um, it, it's, it's an incredible result that you get, but most people are short of it. Why are they short of it? It's because most of the MSM, or the sulfur, is in the natural foods that we eat. And most people don't eat natural foods, or not very much of it, and then they can overcook it, and drive more at, and then you're kicking natural foods out of depleted soil, so there's not that much in. So consequently, all this thing builds up. Then you get all these people who live in nice homes, have plenty of food. They shouldn't be under any major problems. They've got everything. They got clean water and plenty of food, nice good clothing. You know, they're not coming home every day soaking wet through or frozen, and they're always ill. To some degree, we're doing it to ourselves because the biggest problem we have to, one of the big problems we have today is we don't have individualistic free thinkers. We don't have critical thinkers anymore. They're not many. People are just brainwashed today. Government says this, you know the government food pyramid? Yeah. It's the wrong way up. Yeah. You turn it upside down, you're actually starting to get, make some progress. I've often wondered about this. 
other people who are in charge of things really that stupid? And I used to have a say, and I used to say that, politics is the epitome of unskilled labour. Well, that's pretty much true, because your average politician doesn't really know anything about anything apart from skullduggery. I mean, what do they do for a living? They talk for a living. And mostly when they're talking, they're lying. Because everything's done for political reasons. Mm. You go back to Hitler and the Jews, it's done for political reasons, right? A lot of people in at the top are sociopaths, with a smattering of psychopaths, who don't really care about people. I mean, psychiatrists, I mean, I've done psychiatric work, and, and, read, and they say about 4% of the population, on average, is a sociopath. A sociopath is someone who will do what it takes to get what they want, for their benefit without any consideration of anybody else. Like a person who's driving down the road, they see it's a car space, which is quite big enough for two cars, and you'll park in the middle of it. He's either not conscious of the fact that other people might need it, that space that should have been available, or they don't care. Mm -hmm. It's sociopathic tendencies. As long as I get what I want, I don't care about anybody else. And they, they might not think they think that way, but they do it without thinking. It's just an automatic, because everything's about me. Mm. Everybody's met people like that. Uh, they, they, everything's about me element. That's why, changing the subject somewhat, Christian religion, based on the teachings of Christ, is we should always be looking out for other people. The idea is to serve others. Everybody did that. I'd be always looking after your interests. You'd be looking after my interests. We'd be looking after other people's interests. They'd be looking after us. The society would function very well. It'd be a wonderful world to live in. But we don't because of the psychopaths and the sociopaths. Um, and they, unfortunately, because of a need to be in control, tend to percolate to the top. So... Most people at the top, where they get enormous amounts of power, it's true. They say power corrupts and absolute power absolutely corrupts. And it does, it corrupts their thinking. They start believing they belong to a special class and they don't feel they've got any connection with ordinary people. Um, which is unfortunate. And I've met... People, I mean, I've, I've been to almost a hundred countries. I think it's ninety-eight, I think, and spent. I've met everybody from royalty to people who are prime ministers, presidents, senior government officials, and all that. And I met, I met everybody, all the way down to guys who live in a mud hut in Africa or in the Australian outback. And you get to know and understand how people think and behave. Some people just think they're better than everybody else. And others, uh, and it's not just because maybe they might have been wealthy. I met some very, very nice, very wealthy people who were very, I mean, wonderful people. Um, I've met uh, aristocrats like that. Um, so you have to take people 
individually for what they are. But unfortunately, if they live in a society where they start to believe they're just much better than everybody else, they get to the stage where they don't care about anybody else. They just care about themselves. And anybody who they associate with that is has value to them. If you don't have value to them, they don't want to know you. So they're certainly not interested in helping anybody unless there's something in it for them. And that's what you're dealing with. And of course, if you look at society today, things are ramping up all the time where virtually the real problems in the world is the fact that the two biggest single problems in the world is this. The people at the top are genuinely, totally, in 99% of them, totally disinterested in the people they rule or control. It's all about them. But there's an even bigger problem than that. The biggest problem is, is most ordinary people are stupid. They don't think for themselves. They believe any garbage that they're told, whether it's on TV, politicians speak and they're cheering them and all that and they don't realize that when a politician speaks except in very rare circumstances and all of it is, it's all meaningless because it's what they do that counts not what they say and people at the very very top in business they're running these big international corporations they don't live in the real world like the rest of us. They fly by private jets. They make enormous amounts of money. And all they're interested in is themselves. And if they can make a product that's garbage, but people will buy because it, it seems to be nice. And it, especially if, it, if they can make it addictive, mm -hmm. they're going to do it. And that's just the way the world is. And we are living in a day and age where it's all ramping up. So on one side, it's very gloomy because the problems are getting more obvious. But on the other hand, there's kickback starting. People are starting to wake up. They're starting to realize that, you know, maybe this isn't right. And they're starting to think for themselves. There'll always be a large percentage of people who won't, but that's not the point. At least everybody gets the opportunity to wake up and see what's going on and act accordingly. Helps if you're educated in it, but how do you get educated in it? You've got to do it to yourself. You've got to research every single thing I've said today, you could research and find out for yourself. And a lot more. I mean, in some cases we've hardly scratched the surface. The, the, the knowledge is there if you go looking for it. You've probably heard me say this, and I've always believed this. If you are a genuine seeker of truth, if it's important to you, and you're a genuine seeker of truth, and you don't allow your culture, or your inhibitions, or your preconceived ideas to get in the way, so you're open-minded and go looking for the truth, you'll not only find it, but you recognize it for what it is. 
And therefore, the truth on everything is always openly available for people who seek it. And, uh, but we are free to make these decisions for ourselves. And the problem is, what, the, and it's not just them, but the Nazis and the commies and, <laughs> and, and, and Western governments learned from the, right? If you tell somebody something, doesn't matter what it is, on a regular basis, and you say it as a fact, and you keep repeating it over and over again, when people hear this on a regular basis, it becomes part of their reality. And then later on, no matter how much evidence there is to the contrary, they won't accept it because it's all saturated into their brain. And today, because of media, we're bombarded with all this stuff and people are basically giving up thinking for themselves. Now the ones who will survive through these problems in the main are the ones that are going to wake up and start thinking for themselves. Anything else? I think that's brilliant. Thank you very much. You're welcome.